Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open with prayer. Avinu Malkainu, our Father, our King, Lord, we trust tonight that you uh, are here with us by way of your Spirit. We know, Father, that um, you are a God who desires to dwell with his people. Uh, you are a God who desires to um, participate in the everyday activities of those who name your name for righteousness. And so we pray that uh, you would uh, come and be with us during this time, that you would give our hearts uh, uh, an understanding uh, to want to seek your face and to do what is pleasing to you. Um, we ask that you will uh, open our ears and our eyes so that we can see and understand uh, the words that we're studying, uh, that we can hear your voice calling to us, through the pages of Torah, um, we ask Holy Spirit that you will superintend the time, help us to um, uh, to best utilize uh, this opportunity for um, encouragement, for uh, for equipping, for uh, correction, for reproof, uh, knowing with assurity, Lord, that. Uh, your word will not return to you void, and so we press into your words. We 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 seek to be like Messiah. We seek to be uh, a people who are uh, uh, not ashamed to name your name as our God. Um, continue to raise us up during these these days, during these times of confusion, during these times of fear, and um, during these um, just these uh, emotionally charged and politically charged and. And uh, historically relevant days, Lord, it's it's not a secret that uh, you are coming soon. Even the unsaved world has heard the quote-unquote rumor that Jesus will come back to planet Earth. <laughs> Yet we as believers know that it's not a rumor. We know that it is your promise that you will return one day. And the signs are all around us, and so we would do well to listen and to watch and to pray and to be ready uh, for the Master's return. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise as we do it. B'Shem Yeshua, me. Well, I want to thank everyone for joining me once again uh, by way of Skype to Exegeting Galatians. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Uh, I'm a member at um, Congregation Kehilat and I'm a Torah teacher there. Uh, congregation Kehilat is in Thornton, Colorado. I don't um, I'm not living there in Colorado. Of course, most of you know that by now. I, I reside in South Korea. But 
Nevertheless, I'm still a member there, and so, uh, as always, I invite you out to our congregation if you're ever in the Denver area. Thornton is just north of Denver. Uh, hit, uh, you can visit us on a Sabbath, Sabbath day, Saturday. Um, we meet, I believe, in the morning. I think they changed their times now. They used to be in the afternoon, and they moved back to the mornings. So if I'm correct. Um, you know, I haven't been there in four years, so I can't remember. Uh, but give us a give us a visit if you're ever in the in the area. We'd love to have you come out. Um, this study that you're listening to by way of internet uh, comes to you live each week. Uh, we meet via Skype, so all you need to find us is really just some type of device that will connect to Skype. That can be a smartphone, a tablet, a computer, a laptop, etc., Mac and PC. Of course, you can have Skype on either one of those. So just download Skype and then um, head on over to my website, tetzetorah.com. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H, Torah. And right on the home page, along the top, there's a navigation menu section. Just click on the Galatians commentary, and all of the information is there for you, including links to the written notes, which we're following, as well as links to the audio commentaries that I'm recording as we go through the written notes. So if you can't make it by Skype, I'll just mention that um, I record the lessons, and they're about an hour long each week, and um, then after some editing for a few days, I upload them to my website, which then creates a link in iTunes store, uh, and then you can uh, reach the podcast that way. It creates a podcast. So you can either reach me on iTunes, um, just do kind of a search in iTunes for my last name, Hanavi, or do a search for the book of Galatians and you should be able to find my commentaries there or just stay on my website at tetsetora.com and on the Galatians page near the bottom there's a link to the um each up each um ongoing uh, you know newly recorded uh audio recording as I record them so that's either, that's another way you can follow along all right uh, without further ado let's jump into some liturgy and into tonight's study let's date stamp this recording first though this is uh, for those, for the bulk of you who are in America, this is October the 28th, 2017, and this is week uh, 78 of our, um, of our study, and we are in, uh, we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 5, and we're still in verse 3, just that single verse, but before we do that, let's read some liturgy. Similar to last week, um, last week's recording, we're going to use the same liturgy, identical, Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, the first part of the Shema, which would be Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, those few verses there. Then we'll jump over to the middle part of the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 11, and jump down to verse 13 through 21, and then there might be a few straggler verses here and there that I'll bring in. Okay, all right, let's look at the liturgy real quick. For those of you who are with me in the live study, which, by the way, I forgot to mention, if you are able to make it to the Skype uh, session each week, if you're only listening to this commentary by way of an audio file and you're not with me live tonight, um, then you're going to wish that you w- would be able to make the Skype session because after each lesson, uh, those of us in the class, we like to stick around for a little bit of after chat after session chat, after class chat, 
where we just have some fun, bless one another, pray, just kind of discuss the notes or any other topic that comes to mind. We do that for about 15, 20, 30 minutes, whatever we've got time for. Okay, so it's free to everyone. Come on out. No, 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 um, no requirements. Just bring your uh, bring your thoughts. All right. Um, Deuteronomy six, uh, starting in verse four. This is the the Shema that most of us are used to. We'll read the JPS nineteen seventeen version first for the English, and then we'll pick up the Hebrew right after that. Uh, verse four: Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse five: and Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Verse six. And these words which I command thee this day shall be upon thy heart. Verse 7, And thou shalt teach them diligently until thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Verse 8, And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be for frontlets between thy eyes. And verse 9, And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thy house, and upon thy gates. Going back to the Hebrew of those same few verses, verse 4, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohim Adonai Echad. Verse 5, Vahavta et Adonai Elohecha b'chol levavcha u'v'chol nafshecha u'v'chol me'odecha. Verse 6, Vahayu hadrim ha'ele asher anuchi metzavcha hayom al levavecha. Verse 7, Vashinantam levanecha v'tabarta bam b'shivtika b'vetika u'vlektika v'derek u'vshakbaka u'vkumecha. Verse 8, Uksharktam le'ot al yadecha v'hayu l'totafot b'in e'necha. And verse 9, Uktavtam al mezuzot betaka u'vishareka. And just for the sake of the liturgy and the study, I want to jump down um and remind you of a few other verses out of this passage out of this chapter this they're not part of the shema that israel has adopted but they're just part of my emphasis on the topic of being careful to obey the commandments being obligated to do all of the commandments and we're going to discuss this topic of keeping the commandments do we have to keep all of them do we have to do them perfectly do we have to do them all the time what exactly is God expecting of us when he asks us to keep the commandments? We're going to talk about this topic when we read um, not only the liturgy, but when we uh, jump into the study tonight. So there's a few other verses that I'm reminded of when I think about this topic of keeping the commandments and how often should I keep them and how how diligently should I keep them, um, how many of them should I keep, things like that. Uh, I get to verse 17, and, and it says in the English, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his stat- uh, of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he hath commanded thee. Uh, verse 17 in the Hebrew says, Shemor tishmun et mitzvot Adonai elohechem v'edotayv v'chukayv asher tzivach. And then I just want to jump down um, to, uh, uh, well, I also want to include verse 18, just the first part of it, where it says, And thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord. So it's not just this ceremonial aspect of the commandments that I mentioned from time to time. God asks us to actually keep a moral and ethical walk, do that which is right in his eyes. Uh, verse 18, just the first part there is, Thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest go in and possess the land which the Lord swore unto the fathers. That first uh, clause there in the Hebrew, Vaisit hayashar v'hatov be'enei 
Adonai. All right, and then I do want to jump down. Um, we've talked about also in the past verse um, 25, which forms kind of a conclusion just to this particular passage where Moshe says, And it shall be righteousness unto us if we observe to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. And we've talked about in the past that the righteousness that Moshe must be talking about here is a type of righteousness that's very practical, it's pragmatic, it's, it's, it, it um, dictates our everyday behavior, uh, whether or whether or not we make a claim to believe in Jesus as Lord, in other words, whether or not we uh, claim to be a Messianic Jew or not, uh, the righteousness that is reserved unto us that Moshe is referring to in this verse must be basically the type of righteousness that uh, can be seen by a community. In other words, it's just righteous actions that are done on the part of a person who is upright and a person who's seeking after God, a person who's uh, turning away from good and turning, I'm sorry, turning away from evil and turning unto good. So it's just basically a basic righteousness. And the reason we know this must be the case is because it's linked to observing to do all the commandments, and it's also linked to a reward of going into the land, and we'll see later on in the next passage that we're going to read, it's linked to the well-being of our cattle and our livestock, I'm sorry, our, our livestock and our and our, our offspring and our our, our um uh the, the the fruit of the land the things like that so we know it's it's righteousness based on performance in other words it's it's a doing of the right thing uh in god's eyes the hebrew says utsedakati helanu ki nishmor la asot et kol hamitzvah hazot lifnei adonai elokhenu ka'asheretzivanu and I have to resist wanting to make a commentary on every single verse, but I do just want to remind you that when God asks us to do the commandments, there are oftentimes two verbs that are captured in the Hebrew. And we see this in the English as observe to do. Like we see in this last verse in the English right here, it says, and it shall be righteous unto us if we observe to do. So there's two verbs, observe and to do. And this is the righteousness that we're talking about. So that means there's really a righteousness that can be um, reflected both on the inward and on the outward. Obser observation, which in the Hebrew is the um, word shamar, the uh, nishmor here that I'm highlighting for those of you in the live class. Ki nishmor la'asot. So there's these two verbs that we see all over the Tanakh. One of these days I'll do a study and just show you how many times these two verbs are shown back to back next to each other. Nishmor la'asot, or shamor, if I just break down the two verbs, um, the root words uh, shamar and asa, these two words. Nishmor la'asot, or shamar and asa. The first one, shamar, corresponds to observe in the English. And the second one, asa, corresponds to do in the English. And basically, if you were to look this up in your Strong's Concordance, shamar, shamar, the root word, shamar, which we capture as observe, means to kind of carefully watch, to guard, to safeguard, um, to 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 see. Um, but because of the Hebraic understanding of guarding with the intent of doing, it's often coupled with the verb to do in 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 uh, verses all over the place. So that's what we have: guard to do or observe to do. Sounds rather redundant in the English. Observe to do. Do you observe the Sabbath? Yes, I do. Do you do the Sabbath? Yes, I do. Well, which one do you do? Do you observe or do you do? Well, I do them both. I observe to do. That is to the, to say I have safeguard to do. Safeguarding refers to an inward 
quality, an inward mindset, a, a, a decision on the mind and on the heart. Whereas observe, whereas the do part, the asa, um, classifies is a classification of an outward action. So we have an inward motivation, right? In other words, we have kind of a, a motive. Uh, for doing. And that's what's being described in the verse uh, when we see these two verbs put back to back. And they're all over the, the, the Torah. They're all over the Tanakh. All right, let's jump over to uh, chapter 11 real quick for some more liturgy. Uh, I'll try not to make the liturgy too uh, lengthy, but just enough to whet our appetite for the study of the, Galatia, the book of Galatians. In chapter 11 of Deuteronomy, we have the middle part of the Shema. I'm not going to read all of it. I just want to take uh, two or three verses uh, with us tonight. Starting in verse 13 is where the, um, the Shema picks up for, for Israel, where they've designated the Shema. Uh, in the English, it says, And it shall come to pass, verse 13, And it shall come to pass, if you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day to love the Lord your God with, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And verse 14, that I will give you the rain of your land in the season, the former rain, the latter rain, that thou mayest uh, gather in thy corn, thy wine, thy, uh, thy wine, thy oil. And then I'm not going to read the rest of that, verse 15, uh, 16, and 17, and 18, and 19, which are all part of the middle part of the Shema. Um, the three passages of the Shema. This is this forms the middle portion. I'm not going to read all of that. I just wanted to bring to your attention once again. We see these two verbs, um, two two types of verbs that are similar to what we saw earlier. Uh, it's a different verb uh, for the first part, but it's the same verb for the second part. The English says, "And thou shalt, and it shall come to pass if you shall hearken diligently." And so um, this time we've got. I'm sorry, we've got a a, a third verb that shows up in a doubling form that forms a bracket for what we're going to read later on down down below where God says, I want you to diligently keep all of the words. Um, continue to keep doing everything that I'm asking you to do. Uh, diligently hearken or hearken diligently. Uh, the Hebrew says, And here's where we got some doubling. Shemo and tishma'u. If you look these up in the Strong's Concordance, they're actually the same Hebrew word. And this time it's not shemor, it's shema. It's the same one word that we find in the uh, uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, shema, Yisrael, shema, shemoah. It's the same uh, root word, right? Shama is, is the root word, shema, from which we get this derivative, shemoah. And it means not to, not necessarily to um, hearken, I'm sorry, it doesn't necessarily mean to safeguard like we read last time in Shamar. It actually means to hear. But in the Hebraic notion of hearing, it's hear with the intent to obey. Hear with the intent to understand so that one can perform. It's the idea of listening intentively so that you can understand, comprehend, and then go out and take action on that which you've heard. Hear with the intent of obey. So when God says, Shmotishma'u, he means to diligently hearken, or hearken, hearken, or, or listen, listen, if we were to just literally double up the Hebrew. Alright. And then, um, I also just want to highlight in our, in our liturgy real quick, um, uh, let's see, not verse 22, but 
uh, I want to jump down to verse 32. Um, um, because this is relevant for our study tonight. We're asking the question about, in, that Paul's going to bring up in Galatians 5.3 about uh, those who become circumcised, this would of course be adult circumcision, those who are uh, circumcised, what obligation to the Torah do they bring upon themselves? Do they? And there's kind of three aspects that I'm bringing to the table of discussion when we talk about becoming circumcised and becoming obligated to keep the Torah. Do we have to a be obligated to keep all of the Torah? So it's a question of of um, of totality, a, a question of how much of the Torah do we have to keep, right? Uh, so question of volume or whatever you want to call it, question of number. Are we obligated to keep all of it? Number two, are we obligated to keep it? Perfectly, so it's a question of 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 um, you know kind of intensity or um, I'm sorry, not intensity, but uh, uh, totality. You know, is God asking us to do it perfectly? Is that what He's asking us? Quality, I should say. So it's a question of quality. How much of the Torah do we have to keep, and how well do we have to keep it? Do we have to keep it perfectly? So that's the second question that we're kind of discussing tonight. And then the third question is kind of a question of um, duration. Do we have to keep it all the time? Right? So we do have to keep all of it. Do we have to keep all of it perfectly? And do we have to keep all of it perfectly all of the time? Those are kind of three questions that get brought into the discussion of Torah observance when we're talking about um, this question that Paul brings up, or the statement that Paul says about becoming circumcised and obligated to keep the Torah. You know, exactly how much of it do we have to keep? Uh, exactly how uh, perfectly do I have to keep it? And exactly how often do I have to keep it? Things like that. And if we look at Deuteronomy um, 11 verse 32, God says, quote, and ye shall observe to do all the statutes and the ordinances which I set before you this day. Emphasis on the English word all there, which in the Hebrew says, ushmartem la sot et kol hachukim ve'et hamishpatim asher anochi notain lifnechem hayom. Once again, in the English we have observe and do. Right for our two verbs, observe to do, and in the Hebrew we have ushmartem. So our root word is right there in the middle, shamor. That's the root word again. Shamar is really the the the, the root base. The shamar is the prime root, which you're going to show up in the Strong's Concordance. And so um, shamar means to safeguard. This again speaks of motive. It speaks of intent. It speaks kind of an, of an inward quality when you hear this word shamor shamar. Um, shamar is something that you do in your heart and in your mind, in your will, in your emotions, in your volition. So it's an in, it's an inner, uh, um, choice. And then, but we translate it as observe. It's kind of interesting because it, it, the translation in the English doesn't really capture the inner quality of it. But then we have the Hebrew word, um, asa there right next to it again. So we see these doubling up these two verbs again, right? Ushmartim lasot. Um, asa means to do kind of just practically on the outside, you know, either do or don't do kind of a black and white, either do it or you don't do it. Think of the Nike slogan, right? Just do it, right? The opposite would be just don't do it. Doesn't he really speak of motive? Doesn't speak of any inner thoughts or, or any kind of consideration on the inside. Just speaks of an outward action. La sot, just do it. And then we have, uh, be careful to do all. In the English, it says all. In the Hebrew, it says kol. Et Coal. Coal is unmistakably all. So, kind of answers one of the first questions when we get to Book of Galatians. How much of the Torah does God expect us to keep? Well, He's asking us to keep all of it. 
But does that mean perfection? Aha, uh -huh, that's the question. Let's go back and uh, let's go take a look at our Greek liturgy for tonight out of the Apostolic Scriptures. For those of you who are on my live screen, you should see biblia.com pulled up. And I've got, I decided to switch my screen so that we have the matching English on the right side, make it consistent with the Hebrew there. English on the right side, the ESV, and Greek on the left side this time. And we're going to read just the first six verses of chapter 5. Starting in, um, starting with verse one out of the ESV, verse one says, "For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery." Verse two, "Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you." Verse three, "I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law." Verse four, "You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace." Verse 5, for through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Wow, okay, really packed, charged words from Paul. He's really again throwing down the gauntlet. He's turned away from his kind of motherly talk that he was using in the closing of the last chapter, and he's kind of coming at them again with this heavy technical language and these strong warnings. So let's turn to the um, Greek and, and see what we can uh, make of this. Starting in verse 1 again, chapter 5, out of the, uh, the, the New Testament that I'm using, the Greek version, which is the uh, SBLGNT. And I keep mentioning the, the, the different Greek versions because there are different manuscripts, and some of you are trying to follow along with me in the Greek you know, using this audio content, podcast, and you're saying, my Greek doesn't match your Greek, Ariel. What Greek are you using? And since there's so many different manuscripts out there, the one I'm using is the SBL, Society of Biblical Liturgy, Greek New Testament, GNT, the SBL GNT edition of the Greek. Okay, starting in verse 1, Te eleutheria hemos Christos, eleutherosin stekete, un kai me palen zugo douleus in ekeste. Verse 2, Ide ego palas lego human hati in peritimnesta, Christas humas uden ophelese. Verse 3, Marturumai de palen pante anthropo, peritimnemeno, hati ophelates, esten halen ton namon poiesai. We're going to focus in on that uh, verse later on uh, when we uh, get to our study, the verse 3 there. And we're going to look at the back of that Greek again too. Verse 4, Katergetheta apokristu hoitinus en namo, dike uste tes charatas exapesate. Verse 5. Hemes gar penumati ek pistios elpida, dike usunes apek dekametha. Verse 6. The final posic. Verse 6. In gara Christo Jesu ute peritome, ti escue ute acrobustia ala, pistis di agapes in ergumene. Alright, let's, that'll be our Greek. For tonight, and as I mentioned last week, we are only um, are going to be able to look at verse three, chapter five, verse three, for the next few weeks because I'm unpacking it very slowly in kind of even not really word by word, but kind of thought by thought in the in the uh, uh, in its in its format that we read it in the English, which it's helpful to look at the Greek as well. All right, let's turn to our study. Um, we are in. Our commentary, let's see, where are we? Ah, okay. We just finished 
this discussion last week on chapter 5, verse 3. And if you remember, I took chapter 5, verse 3, and I broke it down into two issues. Issue 1, issue 2. And within issue 1, there are two lengthy sections to issue 1. There's kind of a an opening round of questions to issue 1, and then uh, the answering and the conclusions to issue 1. And then we turn to issue 2 of verse 3. So chapter 5, verse 3, and there's only two questions. So again, if we read uh, the verse itself, just verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. And the reason there are so many issues that I brought up in this verse is because at face value, it sounds like Paul's basically warning any male adult that undergoes circumcision, physical circumcision back in Paul's day, any male adult, and I say I keep emphasizing male because um, baby boys at eight days old don't really have a choice in the matter if they're born into a Jewish family. So Paul is making a warning against someone who has a choice in the matter. Uh, in other words, he's obligating himself to undergo circumcision versus the eight-day-old baby boys don't really get the choice. You guys understand that. So Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. And by using the word um, anthropo in the Greek, um, from where we get um, our English word anthropology, uh, anthropo in the Greek, um, right here for those of you who can read and are following along the screen, anthropo means man. And so, therefore, we know that Paul's really not just singling out men. It means mankind. It means person. I testify to every person who accepts circumcision, not just every man. Therefore, we could technically say that it's possible for a woman to accept circumcision using this technical phrase, anthropo. Every person who accepts circumcision. And how would a woman accept circumcision? Well, it simply means she would obligate herself to a Jewish identity from a legal perspective as seen through the um, qualifications of a of a, a Jewish community, a legal Jewish court. Basically, it's a woman uh, converting to Judaism. That's what we would say as every woman who accepts circumcision. So for men, it would include the physical cutting away of the foreskin, but for women, since there isn't any foreskin to cut away, um, she would just undergo all the other steps that uh, were um, required in that day. So the question is, I, Paul, I, I testify every man who accepts circumcision, and in our question, we're raising all of these issues. Um, and two main issues in, that I'm bringing up in my commentary is... Um, Every man who accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law. Uh, what does it mean to accept circumcision? That's one of the issues, really. But what does it mean that he's obligated to keep the whole law? Does it mean he's obligated to keep all of it? Does it mean he's obligated to keep all of it perfectly? Does it mean he's obligated to keep all of it perfectly all of the time? You remember those three kind of aspects of keeping the law that I raised during the liturgy? And then the other issue that I'm going to be bringing up, which is issue number two, which we're not going to be able to hit tonight, uh, that'll be for next week. The issue two is, is Paul even talking about the written law of God when he says obligated to keep the whole law? And the reason I raise this question is because of of the um, definition of the word law as is defined by the first century Judaism as not as defined by 21st century Christianity or even 21st century Judaism. What does Paul mean by this word um, namon here in the Greek? Namon uh, the whole law he is obligated or whole law he is to keep. Holon is all. Um, he is holon whole ton the namon law poiesai to keep. He is uh, he is 
the whole, the, law, to keep. What does he mean by Estin Holland to Naman Poesai that he is obligated to keep the whole law? What does he mean by Naman, this, this root word in the uh, Greek, namas? What does he mean by law here? All right. Those are basically the two issues. All right. So in order to understand the two issues that uh, we're dealing with in my commentary, let me just turn back real quick to the opening question of verse 3 that I mentioned last week. I testify to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. This is just a recap from page the bottom of page 151. Um, I say that this verse is a difficult one to interpret for those who read the scriptures from a face value perspective because the verse seems to be implying that once a person becomes circumcised, that person is subsequently obligated to obey every single mitzvah found in the Torah of Moshe. In other words, he has to keep all of them. I want to explore the two issues brought up by this verse, top of page 152. This is what we covered last week, and this is an instant segue into today's commentary. Issue one, does Paul believe that there's a problem with circumcised people being obligated to keep the whole Torah? In other words, is he warning people not to become circumcised? Because if you take step one of being circumcised, you will then have to take step two, which is being obligated to keep the whole law. Therefore, my warning is not to even take step one. Understand how my logic works there? Is Paul simply warning people that circumcision is a gateway to Torah observance, and this gateway to, the, to Torah observance, this, this lifestyle of Torah observance, is exactly that, a, com a commitment to keeping all of it. It's not like you can pick and choose. And because it's a, a lifelong journey that no one can keep, because it's an impossible journey, because it's a, a, a standard that must be held perfectly all the time, therefore, just don't go through the door. Don't take that first step of circumcision. Is that Paul's line of logic in this verse? That's my first question that I'm going to raise in issue one. And then in... um. Issue two, which we're going to turn to next week, is Paul even talking about the written Torah that he's talking that he's referring to uh, becoming obligated to when he says you're obligated to keep the whole law. Holon Tanaman Poyesai is the is the Holon Naman is the whole law there, the whole written Torah. And we're going to turn to that next week. But let's conclude our our round of questions for issue one. And so when I say let's start with issue one, last week I posed all of these kind of questions that are uh, somewhat rhetorical, and I just want to read those questions because now that we're going to turn to the answers, I'm going to ask, actually answer every one of those rhetorical questions tonight. So look at this paragraph right here for those of you who are in my live study. These are the questions that, we're look, that we posed last week, and tonight we'll turn to the answers. All right, here's the questions that I asked last week. Does Paul believe that there's a problem with circumcised people being obligated to keep the whole Torah? That's the primary question. That's why it's underlined in my commentary. Does Paul really have a problem with circumcised people? This would include, of course, Jewish people who were circumcised on the eighth day, as well as Gentiles who take on circumcision later on and die in their adult life. Does he have a problem with circumcised people being obligated to keep the whole Torah? Additional questions might also be posed for our consideration, which are somewhat rhetorical, but does Paul have a problem with Gentiles wanting to keep the whole Torah? Right? Not just Jews, but how about Gentiles? Uh... Did Paul have a problem with Jews wanting to keep the whole Torah? Notice I keep emphasizing the whole Torah. What if a Jew what if a Jew said to Paul, I don't want to keep the whole Torah. I just want to keep half of the Torah. Would Paul have a problem with them wanting to keep half of it? 
Or is he really trying to emphasize that you got to keep all of it if you're a Jew? Or what if a Gentile says, Paul, I want to become circumcised, but I don't want to keep all of the Torah. I just want to keep parts of it. I want to be selective. Would Paul have a problem with his circumcision then based on his obligation to keep only parts of it? Or is it really a commitment to keep all of it? Uh, the other questions that show up in this little discussion, didn't Paul believe that God expected total Torah obedience when he gave the Torah in the first place? Remember that I read uh, Deuteronomy 11 and the final verse, was it verse 36 or 35? Um, where God says, uh, you know, you're obligated to keep all, that, that Hebrew word kol is all. Didn't Paul believe that God expected total Torah obedience when he gave the Torah in the first place? Right? Or is, or is Paul trying to hint that you can be circumcised, but you don't really have to keep all of it? Right? What, what's going on with Paul's warning about becoming circumcised to keep all of it? Doesn't the Torah itself command total allegiance to its precepts and commands? Right? Isn't that what we just read in Deuteronomy 11 and verse, uh, the final verse? So many questions that I bring up. Right? These are questions that, that Christians discuss amongst themselves. They're also questions that Jews discuss amongst themselves, but with a different type of mindset because uh, Judaism, by and large, does start with this um, uh, premise that God does expect us to keep all of it because we are Israel, and that is our obligation to start with keeping all of it. All right. So we last week we went through this lengthy discussion about how um, Christianity seems to be um, preoccupied with an understanding that when God asks Israel to keep the law and to keep all of it, Christianity ha- takes upon the, has taken it upon themselves to interpret this commitment to all of it as a perfectly obedient commitment. Meaning, not only do you have to keep all of it, but you have to keep all of it perfectly. And I believe that Christianity also implies that you have to keep all of it perfectly all of the time. So there's kind of three aspects to keeping all of it. You have to, number one, keep all of it. Number two, keep all of it perfectly. And number three, keep all of it perfectly all of the time. Sounds rather redundant and very pointed and very specific, but these questions are real life questions for people who are asking, how much of the Torah do I have to keep? And what do I have to keep in order to be counted as righteous by God's eyes? What do I have to obligate myself to in order to be a recipient of the, the blessings that are read about in the Torah? Understand what I mean? So these are really, I'm a really a pragmatic kind of fellow myself. I'm the type of guy who asks these questions. Rabbi, excuse me, which parts of Torah do we have to keep? What about this? What about that? What about this? Right? So I posed the answer last week that I don't believe that God is expecting Israel, or anyone else for that matter, any nation, any person from the nations who joins himself to Israel, to keep all of the Torah perfectly. And let me explain what I mean in my commentary. So let's pick up our reading of the commentary near the bottom of page 154 with answers to the questions raised in issue one. And for tonight's study, just, just by way of a peek uh, in advance where we're going, we're going to hit... Bottom of page 154, we'll, we'll read all of page 155, and then we'll stop at the top of page 156 tonight. So that's what we'll hit. And we'll be poised next week to start near the top of page 156 with the issue two. Is Paul even talking about the written Torah of Moshe? Okay, you guys ready? So that's what we're going to cover tonight. We're going to f- conclude issue number one. And that's what we'll, that's what we'll study tonight. All right, so here we have in my commentary answers to the questions raised in issue one. Now you'll see why I went back and read all of the questions. 
because I re uh, I go over them step uh, question by question right here in my answers here. All right, uh, bottom of page 154 for those of you who have the written notes and are following along this audio commentary with the written notes. We are right near the bottom of page 154. Answers to the questions raised in issue one. Here's what my commentary has to say. I asked, and the underlined question is the is the base question. That's why it's underlined in my commentary. Does Paul believe that there's a problem with circumcised people being obligated to keep the whole Torah? Answer, no. No. Paul expects all genuine followers of Hashem to become submissive to Torah because that is one of the purposes for Hashem giving the Torah. He didn't give a law that he didn't expect people to obey. And he didn't give a law that he didn't anticipate people to not only want to obey or obligate themselves to obey, but to also be able to obey. Understand the basic logic from the Torah perspective? God gave the law to be kept. He didn't give the law so that Jesus could come later in in Israel's history and render the law nullified, void, fulfilled so that we don't have to do it. That's not the purpose that God gave the law. He didn't give the law so that we don't have to keep it. To use, again, basic Christian um, hermeneutic theology when it comes to reading through the apostolic scriptures. Jesus came to set us free from the law, which must mean that God gave the law to Israel so that Jesus could come and set us free from it later on. You understand how I'm putting the, those two um, statements back together uh, from this discussion perspective. So no, Paul did not um, think that God, Paul didn't have a problem with circumcised people being obligated to keep the whole Torah because Paul expects all genuine followers to keep it. Torah is a document that was meant to be followed under the power of the Ruach Kodesh, under the power of God's Spirit. Torah is meant to be kept, not disregarded, not discarded and ignored. Torah is meant to be kept. Just get that in your mind right away as a 21st century follower of God. God's law was designed to be followed, and it was designed to be followed with the intent of receiving the blessing that's on the other end. There's nothing wrong with with expecting to receive from God based on our obedience to him. What, what, what do we read in the Apostolic Scriptures? They that believe in God must believe that he is and that he is a reward of those that diligently seek him. Right? We read that, I think it's in the book of Hebrews, if I remember. Um, we must believe that God is and, the verse says, that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So, it's okay to follow after Torah with the expectation that God will reward you for your obedience. Let's keep reading my commentary. Um, top of page 155, I asked, does Paul have a problem with Gentiles wanting to keep the whole Torah? So, he says, I, Paul tell you to become circumcised. Does that mean Jews only? What about Gentiles who want to be circumcised? What does Paul have to say there? My answer, no. Paul doesn't have a problem with Gentiles wanting to keep the whole Torah. Also, as long as we understand here that the word Torah in this verse is being used to speak of God's word as over against the additional legalistic fences that the Jewish sages had added to the written word of God. I really don't believe that Paul would have a problem with any Gentiles keeping the whole of Torah or wanting to keep the whole Torah, uh, as long as they are obligating themselves to the written Torah, not to the legal fences, especially when those legal fences contradict or uproot the written word of God themselves. In other words, there's really nothing wrong with a tradition as long as that tradition doesn't try to conflict with a written 
commandment of God. Otherwise, traditions are basically harmless. This would include uh, basically the, ri the written, uh, I'm sorry, the oral traditions that were circulating in Paul's day, as well as some of the halakha of today's rabbinic Judaism. There's really nothing wrong with them as long as they are uh, uh, upholding and maintaining the written word of God. But it's when we get the additional legalistic fences that um, supposedly bring righteousness and favor in God's eyes merely based on um, your perfunctory doing of the Torah. Uh, in other words, your mindset is wrong. You start with a wrong-headed notion. That's when Paul would have a problem with any type of Torah, whether written or oral. All right, let's keep reading. I ask, did Paul have a problem with Jews wanting to keep the whole Torah? Right? I'm, I'm really breaking this down along the lines of questions that I've really kind of culminated over the years of my discussions with both Gentiles and Jews, both believers and non, in synagogues and in churches. In my 50 years of living, I've had a chance to visit many unbelieving synagogues, so traditional Jewish synagogues, as well as a numerous amount of churches, and have dialogues with people, both Jews and Gentiles, believers and unbelievers, on this topic of Torah obedience. And I've tried to kind of bring up questions that I've gathered along the way. And these are some of the questions, these are real-life questions that I, I've picked up. Does Paul have a problem with Jews wanting to keep the whole Torah? Right? It seems to be that this is a question in, 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 in Christianity. Some Christians say... Um, Jesus came and did away with the law, and this would mean did away with the law for Jews and Gentiles, meaning no one can keep it anymore because it's been rendered void, uh, void and null. It's voided out, meaning no one, whether Jew or Gentile, can keep the Torah anymore in Messiah because it's been rendered void. But other Christians actually disagree with the first round of Christians by saying, no, Paul didn't do away with the law for everyone. He only did away with the law for Gentiles. Gentiles themselves are not obligated to keep the law in Christ, but Jews are obligated to keep the law because they're Jewish. You see what I mean? So you really have two types of Christian thought going on at the same time in the same churches sometime. And, and, and some Christians are unaware that there's two really opposing views to keeping Torah uh, in their in their general discussion of Torah as Gentiles, uh, uh, Gentile Christians, which is, in my opinion, rather kind of humorous as a Jew as I sit back and watch two Christians go at it, uh, one in favor of all people, uh, one, one Gentile Christian in favor of only Jews keeping Torah, and the other Gentile Christian in favor of nobody keeping it. So I have to ask this question. Did Paul have a problem with Jews wanting to keep the whole Torah? And the answer is no. Jews, both Messianic and non-Messianic, right? <laughs> Jews, both Messianic and non-Messianic, were naturally spoken of in the Bible as being zealous for the Torah. Go back and read Acts 21.20, where uh, it speaks of um, how many Jews who have believed after Paul comes back to Jerusalem, and he meets with James and some of the leaders of the Jerusalem church there, and uh in Jerusalem, and they have this discussion, and they and those those leaders in Jerusalem remind Paul that there's all of these Jews who are um, who have believed in Messiah. You know, Baruch Hashem, they're believers in Messiah. Oh, and by the way, Paul, guess what? Have you heard the news? They're still zealous for the Torah. Yeah, let pause and let that sink in. All these Messianic Jews are still zealous for the Torah. So this is the way that Luke records the, uh, these, these uh, Messianic Jews in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. They're still zealous for the Torah. So yeah, Paul wouldn't have had a problem with Jews wanting to keep the whole Torah, whether Messianic or non-Messianic. Understand what I mean? All right, 
And then I asked in my question, didn't Paul believe that God expected total Torah obedience when he gave the Torah in the first place, right? Total Torah obedience. In other words, how much of it do we have to keep? Paul, is it okay if I as a Jew only keep the parts that uh, I can do, only keep the parts that I understand, only keep the parts that I like? Can I pick and choose the parts? Can I cherry pick? Pick the parts that have the best uh, rewards attached to them? Can I can I pick those ones? Uh, I asked the question, didn't Paul believe that God expected total Torah obedience? The answer, yes. Paul correctly interpreted God's intended meaning of giving oneself completely to obedience to his word. What did we read in Deuteronomy 11.32? And ye shall observe to do all the statutes. Kol, right? Kol is all. Do all the statutes and the ordinances which, which I set before you this day, right? We've obligated ourselves to do all of them. Israel says to God, we will do all that you've said we will do. If we recall from Exodus chapter 19, just before God gave the 10 words, Israel actually says all that you've said we will do. So Israel obligated herself to do them all and God commanded Israel to do them all. So we kind of have an agreement in terms of verbiage on both sides of the uh, of this of this agreement we've got God on one side and Israel on the other side and both of them are using the the all exclusive language pun intended of the word all so uh, yes Paul correctly interpreted God's intended meaning of giving oneself completely to obedience to his word so there's no cherry picking here there's no picking and choosing but I ask in my answer does this not mean I'm sorry, but does this mean perfection? And really, this is, uh, uh, in my opinion, a key discussion, a key distinguishing um, um, uh, detail that we need to bring to the table of discussion when we're talking about obligation to all of the commandments. Does it mean perfection? And I firmly hold to, and you have to uh, follow with me for a moment because I'll explain what I mean by uh, uh, this statement. I firmly believe that the Torah does not um, obligate perfection. It doesn't obligate perfection when it says all. Else the entire book of Leviticus with its sacrifices, I say, would not make any sense. There's another reason logically why God can't mean perfection. I'll bring it up here in a moment. God expects obedience, I say in my commentary, but he anticipates our failures. In our obedience, in our obligation to keep all of it, God actually anticipates that we will fail. Right? Um... From ancient Israel's perspective in the Tanakh, to, now listen to this logic. Please listen very carefully if you're, if you're raised in a Christian home and you've never considered the, 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 uh, the technical discussion that we're having here about Torah and obedience to Torah from a perspective as if you were a Jew. So please listen up very carefully now. From, and I'm, I'm trying to give you the insight that I've gained as, from living my life as a Jew for 25 years at least. Uh, the first half of my life, I lived as a as a as a non-Jew, as a Gentile. I wasn't aware of my Jewishness, but 25 years into my life, I figured out that I was a Jew, and then took on the obligation to live as a Jew for the remaining uh, for the remainder of my life. And so, for the 50 years that I've been alive, half of it I lived as a Jew. And in that lifetime, in that time period, I've interacted with non-Messianic Jews quite extensively. Uh, attending synagogue for two years as an Orthodox Jew, grew my beard really long, grew out my side curls, the whole nine yards, ate um, glatt kosher, you know, milk and meat separation. I didn't have two refrigerators, couldn't afford that. But um, whenever I met with the community, I separated my milk from my meat, and I ate only um, that which uh, only only um, that which was not only kosher from a biblical perspective, but was um, had a hechsher on it, which is like this little. 
um, rabbinic stamp of approval that you can find on food. So the point is, I've I've got some experience, at least 25 years, uh, give or take here and there, of of dialoguing with non-Messianic Jews, and I think I've got a little bit of perspective on this statement that I'm about to make. From ancient Israel's perspective in the Tanakh, to follow after Torah meant to be also meant to also bring the required sacrifice when one violated Torah. Meaning, from their perspective, they knew that God wasn't holding out a standard of perfection. They knew that keep all of Torah means keep the keep the sacrifices, not if you sin, but when you sin. Thus, instead of expecting perfection, like the Christian church so often tries to make this argument when they're talking about keeping the Torah, I hear it over and over from pulpits, from discussions that I have on the street at a layman level, and I read it in commentaries over and over repeatedly, so that's why I'm stressing it tonight in my um, in my commentary here. Instead of expecting perfection, the logic follows that from God's perspective, um, the required Torah obedience of Israel also actually anticipated Israel's failure to keep it perfectly. So when God says, Israel, you are to keep all of it, he also says, when you sin, Israel, here is part of what you are to obligate yourself to do. You must follow through with bringing sacrifices when you commit certain types of sins. So it's not if you sin, Israel, in your striving to keep it perfectly, and if by chance somehow perfection fails and you somehow slip up and you can't keep it perfectly, then if that takes place, God forbid it should happen. I hope it doesn't happen, God says. But if it happens, you can hear me speaking sarcastically. If that happens, God says, there's some command, there's some, there's some sacrifices over here that will help you um, get out of that situation. And then you can get back on the road of perfect obedience, perfection. No. There's no road of perfect obedience in the first place. There never was. God never expected perfection in this lifetime. God expected that one gives oneself wholeheartedly to keep the Torah, and when you fail, not if you fail, but when you fail. All right, and I'll, I'll elaborate on that just a little bit more when we get down into my commentary, because some of you uh, have had a discussion with me and said, no, Ariel, I think God was expecting perfection. All right, and we had this discussion from time to time, but... Keep following along with me. I'll explain my view, and I think you'll see that what I'm uh, describing is fairly accurate. And then the final question that I asked uh, last week that we're now uh, going over this week and answering by way of my commentary is, I asked, doesn't the Torah itself command total allegiance to its precepts and commands? And all of some of these questions, of course, overlap, and I'm doing that on purpose. I'm trying to be somewhat redundant by filling in all of the possible questions the way that people ask them. Doesn't the Torah itself command total allegiance? I'm trying to describe both sides of this legal document. I'm trying to see it from God's perspective, and I'm trying to see it from man's perspective, and that's why I'm asking so many questions somewhat redundantly and somewhat overlapping. The answer to this question is yes. Yes, the Torah itself commands total allegiance to its precepts and commands. So yes, to answer Paul's question, if you become circumcised, you're obligated to keep the whole uh, Torah. To 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 affirm with what to agree with what Paul is really hinting at. Yes, but this goal of of total allegiance is completely attainable. It's completely attainable. And the reason I bring that up again is because in traditional Christian circles, it is vogue to entertain the notion that God asked us to keep the Torah, but 
He knew we couldn't really keep it. He knew that it's an unattainable goal. He knew that it's a it's a perfect standard that no one can keep. He knew that really it's it's a it's a standard that's so high and lofty that man would try and climb that mountain to reach the top to be perfect, that he would try to climb that mountain of keeping the Torah, and in his struggle to keep it, not only would he fail time and time again, but eventually he would throw his hands up in desperation and realize and say, that's it, I give up. This is an unattainable goal. It's a millstone around my neck. I can't keep it. Please, Lord, remove this obligation from me. Set me free from my obligation to keep the Torah. Set me free. Break this yoke because it's an unattainable yoke. It's not doable. It's a perfect standard that I can't keep, and it's it's a burden to me. It's a burden around my neck. Please set me free. And supposedly in this cry of set me free, that's where God steps in in the person of Messiah, sets the person free, breaks the chains. The yoke of Torah falls off of his neck, right? The, the, the stone sinks to the bottom of the sea, and the person can finally swim in the freedom of Messiah because the stone of Torah, the weight of the yoke of legalism, has been cut and severed from his neck and it's fallen and sunk into the bottom of the ocean. You understand? This is basically the viewpoint that I gather as I dialogue with pastors and read through the commentaries. This is, in a word, that's what they teach. And so, here's what I said. Doesn't Torah itself command total allegiance? I asked the question. The answer is yes, but this goal is completely attainable. God gave the Torah knowing that we can do it. Recalled uh, Deuteronomy 30 last week that I mentioned, where he says this word is not too far. Verse Deuteronomy 30, verse 12, 13, 14, and 15. Um, this 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 word is in your mouth and in your heart that you can do it. All right. So this 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 goal is attainable, but only if one surrenders his will to God by allowing God to write the Torah on the heart. Of course. We know that when we talk about this language of God writing the Torah on the heart, uh, you know, recall uh, from Ezekiel chapter 36 where God says, I'll take out the stony heart and I'll put in a heart of flesh. Also recall Jeremiah chapter 31, around verse 31 um, through, and following through 33, I suppose, the very familiar passage where God says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah and I'll write my laws on their inward parts. And we know that this passage in Jeremiah 31 is lifted verbatim, uh, for the most part, into the book of Hebrews in two sections, in Hebrews chapter 8 and in Hebrews chapter 10, both of which are uh, nearly complete quotes, which forms the longest quote from the Old Testament of any passage in the New Testament itself. And um, the writer to the book of Hebrews, again, reemphasizes the idea that God is going to make a new covenant. And the point I'm trying to make is that in this new covenant, God writes the law on the heart, but not just any kind of heart. God only writes the Torah on the heart that has been recreated by God himself, a circumcised heart. Remember Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 all over again, circumcise your heart, therefore, and be not stiff-necked any longer. A circumcised heart is the heart that can receive the words of Torah. So, in my answer, I say, um, God writes the Torah on the heart, of course, using 2020 hindsight when we read through the verses about circumcised heart. You know, they were, they were, they were promises of Israel's future, of Israel, of collective Israel one day having a circumcised heart. But that doesn't mean that individual Israelites couldn't um, walk into the reality of a circumcised heart as they placed their genuine faith in God. So using 2020 hindsight as Christians now, we can look backwards into the Tanakh and we, we can understand now that when God asked Israel, for instance, in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 to have a circumcised heart, 
that we understand now, I say in my commentary, that this implies surrendering to Yeshua, the very goal of the Torah from start to finish. Amen? Amen. So a circumcised heart really means uh, faith in Messiah. All right, so let's read the conclusion to this section tonight, um, and then I'll see if I can make this make sense. Basically, um, in this discussion where Paul brings up this issue of if you become circumcised, you're obligating yourself to keep the whole Torah— in issue one, where I'm raising about does he does he mean that we're obligated to keep all of the Torah? There are some various questions that get thrown around between Jews and Christians when they talk about this uh, topic of circumcision and its obligation to Torah. Some of the questions include how much of Torah do we have to keep? Some of the questions include don't we have to keep it perfectly? Some of the questions include don't we have to keep it all of it perfectly all of the time? In other words, we have to maintain this not only this standard, but we have to maintain it perfectly, and we have to maintain it all of the time. Doesn't it mean it's an obligation for Jews and Gentiles? Uh, in other words, uh, you know, what exactly did Jesus do to the Torah when he came? <laughs> and so, in my conclusion here, I actually start from this discussion of Matthew chapter um, 5, starting at verse 17 and going down to verse through verse 21, I think it is. Matthew 5, uh, let me just bring it up because I have it in, I, I think I've got it, I had it in another version. Matthew 5, uh, 17 through 21, I think, or 17 through 20, is a very familiar passage um, for discussion between Christians and Jews because most Bibles will label this section 5 through 20, 5, chapter 5, verse 17 through 20 as Christ came to fulfill the law. And so in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then many uh, discussions in, in Christian churches stop at that verse with the fulfillment that Jesus is referring to in this verse, where he says, I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The fulfillment there that they um, interpret is is interpreted in such a way as as releasing a believer's obligation to do them. Meaning, because Jesus fulfilled them, I as a believer, whether Jew or Gentile, no longer have to even obey them. I don't, I'm not obligated to keep the Torah anymore because Jesus, who could do it perfectly, did in fact do it perfectly, and therefore he filled up the righteous requirement of the Torah, and therefore the logic goes in Christian circles, I have no obligation left. You guys following me? And it sounds fairly fairly airtight if you think about it, but let's read my commentary. Conclusions to questions raised in issue one. We're near the bottom of page 155, moving into the top of page 156. Yeshua did indeed bring the law to its fullest intended meaning and expression. By the way, this paragraph that we're reading right here is an, it's an exact lift from my um, to this commentary way back in the uh, preface section where the 10 questions and answers preface questions that we studied two years ago. Um, so if you're not familiar with what I was talking about, go back and read that. It's at the very beginning of this commentary where one of the questions that's commonly raised, commonly, not 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 just rarely, but extremely commonly raised is, hey, you you Torah observant Jews and Gentiles, you Messianics, you Torah observant people, you Torah communities, what do you guys make of Matthew chapter five, verses seventeen through twenty, where Jesus says he came to fulfill the law, therefore I don't have to do it anymore. What do you guys make of that? So this is kind of my commentary on that. The root Greek word pleiro uh, fulfill in Matthew five seventeen, where Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill, the Greek word is pleiro. 
It simply means to fill to the top, that is to make full, to bring to realization. Jesus did, in fact, fulfill the law. He brought it to its fullest intended meaning. He did fulfill it. He plerowed it. <laughs> right? Contrary to popular Christian teaching, however, right, God's Torah never commanded or expected sinless perfection, else the sacrifices for sin would be meaningless. However, in Messiah, we are in fact supposed to strive towards perfection in this life until we one day finally put it on for e. Eternity. And I had this discussion last week with some of the um, members in my uh, live class. We talked about how this idea of God expecting perfection actually carries a little bit of weight when we think about the stages that humanity is going to go through. We had this discussion last week, so those of you who are with me in the live class right now, recall that we talked about this in the after chat session. We talked about how, and I, and I want to thank my students for bringing this to my attention, because I, I need to make sure I, I articulate this carefully to those of you who are listening to my commentary. When you hear me say over and over again that um, we don't have to keep the Torah. Give me a second. Let me look at Skype and see what's going on. Oh, okay. Um, uh, but anyway, um, uh, uh, what we talked about last week is that um, um, Last week, some of my students raised the issue and said, no, I think actually we are supposed to keep it perfectly. God is expecting perfection. Because in Messiah, we once we've been brought, to, brought into a knowledge of Messiah, we actually can fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Thus, in one sense, we are able to keep it perfectly, is what one of my students mentioned. And um, here was my, here's part of my response as I'm uh, bringing this conclusion in my study here. There's actually, as my, in my understanding, there's, and I'll try to make this quick, there's basically th- kind of three stages or phases that mankind is going to go through. One of the phases or stages or dispensations, if you want to, if you like that word, that man is going to go through is um, the stage that we're in right now, which is where we have all, where we have man who has not yet received his, his um, regenerated body, his, his, um, his resurrected body. So the only person uh, that has a resurrected, resurrected body so far is Yeshua himself. He's the only one. He's the first fruits from the dead. And he's the only one who has a resurrected body. Everyone else, all other men, whether they're believers or not believers, whether you're alive or dead, uh, whether you are living or dead right now, no one has a resurrected body yet. And those who aren't believers or died in their unbelief, they're just lying in the ground awaiting the uh, second resurrection to death. Did I say second resurrection? I mean the resurrection unto judgment. So basically, as I understand it, the, the we're in stage one of three stages, or phase one of three phases. And the fa- first phase is where no one has a resurrected body yet, only Yeshua. The second phase that we're going to encounter on Earth's history is the millennial stage that we read about, which Jews call the Olam Haba, the age to come. The millennial um, uh, age, which is a thousand-year time period where Jesus will reign in bodily form here on planet Earth from Jerusalem, from the capital of the Earth at the time, and Jerusalem will be raised up to its righteous position once again. And during that time, those who have faith in Messiah, those who died in Christ before Christ returned, will of course be resurrected with a new body. We read about this in Thessalonians, and we also read about this in other parts of of the Apostolic Scriptures. So we know that there will be a resurrection uh, for those who have died in Messiah before he came back, and this resurrection will 
include a new body. So this will be kind of phase two. So during this phase of Earth's history, we will have people living on the Earth who have a resurrected body, but at the same time, we'll have those who survived all of the... Um, you know, all of the battles of Armageddon and all of the other destructions during the, um, during the, uh, 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 what do we call it? The, um, the tribulation and things like that. Those who survived and made it through the, the great tribulation, the period known as the great tribulation and the battle of Armageddon, all of those things, those who made it through those alive, but yet still don't confess faith in Yeshua, as well as those who were born after them. So the offspring of those, uh, people who don't believe in the millennium, these people will still have the same type of body, as far as we can tell, similar to uh, those of us today. They won't be resurrected. And as far as I can tell, um, they will die very early. They won't live long lives. They won't live lengthy lives. They won't live the, you know, the entire thousand years like those of us who are believers are. So there will still be sin on the earth during the second time period. And that's kind of the phase two. And then phase three is after the thousand years are over, uh, uh, the devil is released from his thousand-year prison. We read in Revelation chapter 21, I believe, 20 or 21 or 22, somewhere around there, those last few chapters of Revelation. And during that time period, after the devil is released, after the thousand years, he's going to make war on Jesus, on Yeshua and the saints. Uh, that would be us, of course. And he's going to be defeated, and then he'll be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. And at that point in time, the earth and heaven will go through another transformation. And at that time, we'll enter what we call phase three of Earth's history. So three types of phases. Now, why did I bring all of this up? Which one of those phases do you think God expects perfection? I think that it is in phase probably two and three when we have a perfected body that we will actually be able to keep the Torah perfectly. In other words, I think the resurrected body, as far as I can tell, will be able to keep the Torah perfectly because if violation of sin if violation of Torah is the definition of sin that we read about in 1 John, right? Sin is a violation of Torah. And if in the millennium, um, resurrected believers will be sinless, sin-free, then the logic follows that resurrected believers will be able to keep the Torah perfectly in the time period of the um, millennium. In other words, during the thousand-year period of that second phase of Earth's history, only believers will be able to keep the Torah perfectly. Unbelievers will still be in a place where Try as they may, they won't be able to keep Torah perfectly. Also, when we enter into the third phase where there will be no more sinners, right? No more sinful mankind. Sin will be wiped away. Death will be wiped away. And the third stage of Earth's history and, and eternity will entail perfect humanity. Well, of course, perfect humanity must entail perfect Torah obedience as well. Whatever semblance of Torah is left, whatever parts of Torah that God obligates us to keep in eternity will, of course, be able to keep them perfectly. So, basically, in the three phases of Earth's history of humanity, phase one, phase two, and phase three, I think that it's in phase one, the one that we're living in now, I think it's in that phase that God doesn't expect perfection. He doesn't expect perfection because no one has a resurrected body yet. It's only in phase two and phase three where we'll have resurrected bodies that God can actually expect perfection because it would be possible due to uh, based on the fact that we'll have a resurrected body, the, the flesh will have been um, put away, and we'll, uh, the, what does Paul say? The corrupt, the corruptible will have put on incorruptible incorruptibility. So, um, going back to my commentary in closing, contrary to popular Christian teaching, um, God's Torah never commanded or expected sinless perfection during phase one, 
else the sacrifices for sin would be meaningless. Also, by way of linking this idea of keeping Torah with sacrifices, we know in phase one that we did have sacrifices earlier in Israel's history. 2,000 years ago, when the temple stood, we did have sacrifices. Therefore, sacrifices and sin are linked together. Wherever there's sin, there must be sacrifices. And whether, whether, wherever there are sacrifices, there precludes the um, uh, presence of sin. So they work together there. They're tandem concepts. Sin and sacrifices go together on an earthly level. So if there is a temple, then there must be sacrifices. And if there are, if there are sacrifices, then there must be sin because of the sacrifices. You guys understand my logic? So in phase one, we had the temple and sacrifices, therefore we had sin. We had sin, we had sacrifices. In phase two, during the millennium, we know there will be a, a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. And we also know from reading the book of Ezekiel that there will be sacrifices that will be brought. Well, this means because of sacrifices, there must be sin. And sure enough, if you read through the prophecies of Isaiah that talk about the millennial time period, there in fact is sin. And of course, we know from reading Revelation chapter, I think it is 20, chapter uh, 20, where are 20 or 21, near the end of Revelation, where the devil comes up out of his prison after a thousand years and makes war with the saints and with Jesus. Well, who does he... Um, who does he who does he gather together to himself to make war against Yeshua? Well, he gathers together all the sinners. Well, where do the sinners come from? They're all those people in the millennium who don't believe in Jesus. So, because there is sin in the millennium, then there means there must be sacrifices again. See how it works together? So, it's in phase one and two of Earth's history of of human of humanity's history that we must have sacrifices because of sin. It's really only in phase three that we have no sin, therefore we have no sacrifices at all. So, um, in Messiah, we are in fact supposed to, I'm sorry, contrary to popular Christian teaching, God's Torah never commanded or expected sinless perfection, else the sacrifices for sin would be meaningless. However, in Messiah, we are in fact supposed to strive towards perfection in this life until we one day finally put it on for eternity. Recall, uh, what is it, um... Philippians 3, where Paul talks about that I press towards the goal of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And he talks about in that same chapter that it's not as though I have attained or already reached this goal. So Paul presses forward because he knows that he's not yet perfect in Messiah. And if we were actually to uh, go over to um, Matthew chapter 5 near the end of the chapter where Yeshua, in that in our discussion about um, that we're discussing right now, where Jesus says, I, "I came to to fulfill the law." Uh, near the very end of uh, Matthew chapter five, it's interesting that Jesus says to that same crowd in, in verse forty-eight, which is the very last verse of Matthew chapter five, "You must, there, you therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Perfect. Is, is Jesus asking, is he calling for perfection? No, don't get confused. If you go back and look up this Greek word, um, it's a root, it's rooted in the word, um, pleiro. Um, I'm sorry, it's greeted, rooted in the Greek word, uh, teleo, which is, uh, uh, this word means, uh, maturity. So therefore, Yeshua is basically saying, you must therefore be mature as your heavenly father is mature. And so in Philippians 3, where Paul talks about, um, uh, you know, starting in verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature, he says in, uh, Philippians 3.15, in the, um, Greek, the word mature there is, uh, um, 
is uh, this word teleoi, teleoi. And teleoi is rooted in this idea of perfect, but it means maturity, right? It's, it's the idea of, of completion. And so Paul is saying those of us who actually are mature, meaning those of us who are perfect, those who already have our faculties uh, trained by the Word of God, those of us who have surrendered to faith in Messiah, we can actually walk this walk, but we're not perfect like Messiah yet. We haven't put on our new body. So, um, however, in Messiah, we are in fact supposed to strive towards this perfection like Paul strove towards it, where he says, I press towards the mark. And we do this our whole life until we finally put it on for eternity. Therefore, I say in my commentary, in this life, right, in phase one, and while the temple stood in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, true obedience to Torah included bringing sacrifices when one sinned. Thus, the Torah actually anticipated our failure to keep it from time to time by making provision for our shortcomings. You guys understanding what I'm saying here? God didn't expect perfection in this lifetime. He, he knows that until we have a resurrected body, which is either in the millennium or in the, uh, uh, in the uh, time period of, of um, eternity, he knows that without a resurrected body, we can't keep the Torah perfectly, and therefore God doesn't expect a perfection. Therefore, we have sacrifices that remediate that. At least when there's a temple, we have sacrifices. So... Um, Torah actually anticipated our failure to keep it from time to time by making provision for shortcomings. And that's why we read Galatians 3.19 so many months ago. Um, without, which Galatians 3.19 reminds us that um, why within the law it was added because of transgressions with a view towards the um, coming Messiah, the coming offspring, which is Yeshua, who would come and uh, uh, bring total perfection uh, both inwardly and someday outwardly as well. All right, that's Romans, I'm sorry, that's Galatians 3, 19, as I'm turning to it here. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place to an angels by an intermediary. Transgressions and, um, transgressions and put in place, let's see, why then the law is added because of transgressions. Law, transgressions, the law that has to deal with sacrifices, things like that. All right, so as I close in my commentary, without expect, without expecting sinless perfection, the Torah nevertheless does consider even a single breach to be guilty of violating the whole. Thus, the Torah can actually show how all of mankind is guilty before God. There is no human being who can claim perfection, and the Torah proves this by saying that even if you are keeping all of it except one piece, you're guilty of really violating, or guilty of violation, not of just that one piece, but violation of the Torah as a whole. So, um, the Torah nevertheless does consider even a single breach to be guilty of violating the whole. Thus, to break one commandment was to be guilty of breaking them all. Read James or Jacob 2.10, right? Um, and we studied that last week also. That's not a secret to Christians. So, in other words, that's the way God designed it. You break one, and it's as if you're guilty of breaking them all, meaning the point is that you're just guilty. The point is that you can't claim sinless perfection uh, if you've been keeping 99% of it, but you violated one. You can't come to God and say, hey, let me in. I'm perfect, except for that one thing I didn't keep. God, other than that, then I'm perfect. So let me in based on my performance of 99%. God says, nope. It's that 1% of violation that prevents me from letting you into heaven because you, are, in fact, are a sinner. Therefore, because you are a sinner, you are in need of Yeshua, my son. All right, that's the way the logic flows from Jacob. 
And since the final payment for sin would have demanded the final death of the sinner, right? Ezekiel 18.20 shows us that the soul that sinneth shall die. Basically, if God had not sent the sacrifices in that time period to provide a, a, a way to be remedied from, from, um, from a ceremonial sin, as well as providing the, the sacrifice of Yeshua to remediate uh, spiritual sin, well then, um, you know, heavenly sin, eternal sin, well then um, all of us should not only die physically, but we would have to die eternally. So we would not only die physically, but we would also die eternally. We would be not only physically separated from God when we die, then when our body expires, but we'd also be eternally separated from God at the moment of the day of judgment when God separates the, 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 the um, when he made, does that, that, that uh, separation, the, uh, the great white throne judgment and separates sinners from saints. So um, Ezekiel 18.20 just reminds us that the, the soul that sins has to die unless there is a sacrifice for that soul, both on a physical level as well as, and ultimately on a final, eternal, heavenly level. Yeshua, I say in this sentence, since the final payment for sin would have demanded the final death of the sinner, Yeshua paid this price by dying in our place, thus fulfilling the payment required by the Torah, Baruch Hashem. But Yeshua's words here in Matthew that we're kind of studying, Matthew 5, they carry an additional meaning as evidenced by his own explanation in verses 18 through 20, that if we were to go back and read the Matthew 5 passage, and don't stop in verse 15 where he says, I didn't come to do away with the law, I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill them. If we go back and read 18 to 20, we see that Yeshua actually describes a doing of the Torah. And in my commentary I say, indeed the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, right? He actually says that the person who does them and teaches others to do them is will be called great. And the person who relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to relax them will be called least. So I don't know how you're interpreting fulfill as a traditional Christian. In verse 17, I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill them. If your interpretation of fulfill means that you don't have to do them anymore, then I'm afraid you're probably misunderstanding the passage because you're equating fulfill with relax. You're trying to say that Jesus' fulfillment of them means that he relaxed them and you don't have to do them anymore. But that can't be what Jesus means in this passage because he says, therefore, whoever relaxes once of the any, even the least of these, and teaches others to relax the least of them, will be called least in the kingdom. Right? And then he tells us the reverse as well. Those who do them, what's the them, by the way? The them is the commandments. Whoever does them and not only does them, but teaches them will be called great in the kingdom. Now, I don't know about you what it means to be great and least in the kingdom. Some might say, but at least we're both in the kingdom, whether you're least or great. I don't think that's the point. The point is that the master is trying to let us to understand that he is in control of who's least and who's great. And this hinges on whether you're teaching them and doing them or whether you're relaxing them and teaching others to relax them. So which camp do you want to be in? Do you want to be least in the kingdom, or do you want to be great in the kingdom? In other words, do you want to be among those who relax and teach others to relax them, or do you want to be among those who do and teach others to do them? You guys getting my point there? All right. So let's go back to my commentary. So uh, Yeshua's words here in Matthew, and indeed the rest of his Sermon on the Mount, right, tell us that he can't mean fulfill as to be, you don't have to do them. In the following verses of what I just showed you, 18 through 20, as well as the rest of 
Matthew 5, the Master plainly reveals that all of the Torah must eventually be fulfilled and even implies that true followers of God will carry out this fulfillment by doing and teaching others to do even the least of the commandments. And I conclude with this final sentence, After all, just because Yeshua obeyed the Torah perfectly, which we know he did, this doesn't excuse believers from remaining obedient to its commandments. So, man, it's a good place to say amen. So, in closing, I, I just want to uh, remind us that we're not even really done with Galatians 3, I'm sorry, with Galatians 5, uh, 3 yet. So, next week, we'll look at Galatians 5, 3, and we'll finish this discussion where Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. We've talked about circumcision and obligation to keep not only all of it, but to throw your whole heart into it and to do it under the power of the Spirit. But we also talked in this, in these, in last week and this week that it doesn't mean keeping it perfectly as long as we're in phase one of, of humanity's history. Perfection is not something that's possible, nor is it something that God expects. Rather, giving one's whole heart is what God expects. Giving one's uh, loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind is what, all your might is what it says in the Hebrew, but in the mind it says in the Greek. Um, that's what God really expects of a person now. And then, since Paul says, you're obligated to keep the whole law, right, the last part of the verse, obligated to keep the whole law, we're going to talk next week about how, when he, when he says the whole law here, he's probably not talking about written Torah there when he talks about obligation. You're thinking, what? What are you talking about, Ariel? So, that's what we'll talk about next week. We'll turn to issue two. Is Paul even talking about the written Torah of Moses when he talks about becoming circumcised and becoming obligated to keep the law. And if I've left you with a huge question mark, that's actually good, because I hope you'll tune in next week to find out, okay? Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for the opportunity to study the book of Galatians, to study through the, the Torah, to study these words with the students tonight. I pray that you'll continue to be with them, continue to raise them up, continue to challenge them, to press in, continue to give them questions, because actually, as long as the Holy Spirit is prompting them, questions are good. Indeed, Lord, as we, we as Messianics, as we as believers, dialogue with both unbelievers as well as believers who don't uh, yet claim to have an obligation to follow after Torah, as we dialogue with them, if we notice that they are not asking questions, that's actually somewhat of a bad sign. It means that perhaps um, the uh, Holy Spirit is not yet uh, uh, pricking their hearts to to consider the discussion that we're talking about at the moment. And so if we're talking about salvation with an unbeliever and they don't start asking questions, perhaps the time is not yet for the Holy Spirit to to prompt them to, to ask eventually the question, what must I do to be saved, right? Um, but we as believers know that we, we nevertheless need to continue the dialogue with unbelievers until they do start asking questions because the presence of questions really, in my understanding, presupposes the presence of the Holy Spirit prompting them and, and pricking their hearts and convicting them to sin and to, to seek answers to the dilemma of what must I do to be saved. And when it comes to having a discussion with believers, but on the topic of Torah, 
such as the kind that we as messianics have with our well-meaning Christian friends and family and, and, and things like co-workers and such, if they're not asking questions about Torah observance the way I'm asking them tonight somewhat, then perhaps maybe the Holy Spirit's not prompting them into this discussion at the moment. But nevertheless, this doesn't uh, stop us from having this discussion with them uh, because, after all, Lord, you actually do uh, expect Israel to obligate herself to keep the commandments. That's what we read about in the Torah. So thank you, Father, for bringing us to this place where we can have these discussions and hopefully come to some better answers, knowing that we don't have all the answers, but yet we are willing to be Bereans and keep pressing in. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>